0: Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard from Montreal from my hotel room. I am very 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 happy today because it's been incredible what's been happening and thank you so much for all your support and all your reviews that you've given on, you know, iTunes and the, the emails and the texts and just walking around this festival. If you've never been to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival, do yourself a favor, go next year. If you're in the area or whatever, come now. It's it's some like nothing you've ever been to before. And if you're affiliated with comedy, it's just a first-class operation and you're around some of the greatest people in the world, comedically and executives as well. And it's so flattering for me to walk around these hallways and have these people uh come up to me from all walks of uh, life some in the business as performers some in the business as executives and some in the not in the business at all and and share with me the stories of how they listen to our show and I say our show and I know it sounds corny my guest today Mark Breslin changed my life a little bit uh which he probably doesn't know I was a uh, a young stand up comedian in Boston, and I was running comedy clubs all over New England, and I had like fifty one nighters and comedy clubs all over the place, and I had my group of talent that I worked with who were great comedians who, you know, is well documented from Bob Goldthwaite to Stephen Wright to the locals like Steve Sweeney and Don Gavin and DJ Hazard and and Jonathan Katz, who created Dr. Katz, and just amazing, amazing people. Dennis Leary being another one, Anthony Clark, Nick DiPaolo. And, um, you know, back then I didn't have much. I didn't have a lot of money. All I had was, you know, the little bit of money I was making from these gigs, but I felt like I was in the business And I felt I was knowledgeable about the business and I was knowledgeable about what made comedy great, although people would dispute that. It was the 80s and I was on an island. You know, Boston was an island. It was a great island. Great comedy. Great comedy. But all I knew was my circle of people. And for whatever reason it was, I had heard about Mark Breslin through a few comedians that had come through town. And they did really, really well. Really well. And I had seen people come from the UK into Boston, and they didn't do that well. I had seen people come from other countries, and they didn't do that well. But these people did well. And I thought, my God, you know, wouldn't it be great to bring a lot of these guys down and do the circuit that I was working on. So I put in a call to um, the owner of the comedy club there in Toronto, Yuck Yucks. And the owner's name, the man who's sitting here before me, Mark Breslin. And I bought my ticket and I went up to Toronto. I'd never been to Canada before. And he had told me before I came up, listen, come up and I'll put on a showcase for you. And I'll put on all the best people, and uh, you'll get to see them and see if uh, you can have them work in your circuit. And I wasn't expecting anything, really, but he was so wonderful to me and so kind, and his staff, Jody McGregor and Liz Hodgson, and they were so wonderful and kind to me. And, you know, can we get you a drink? Can we get you some food? Can, I, I mean, never... You know, my my mom always told me, be nice to people when they come and and treat them like a million bucks. But I never knew other people in other countries went by the same philosophy. I was very naive. And I went into this comedy club room, and uh, the audience was filing in, and it was about ready to start. And I looked around this room, and I thought, and I I share this honestly— I thought to myself, well, in Boston, we have a lot of places that look like hell gigs. We have a lot of places that look like a little hole in the walls, but this was like a comparable kind of place. It was like a it was a place that almost like in the outside hallways of the place, it looked nicer than actually when you got in the room. And I couldn't really figure that out. You know, I'm walking around like, well, this is really nice out here. Walked in the room and it was just like a regular dark. I don't want to say dingy because it's a bad word, but it was a dark place. And I thought, my God, geez, are comedy clubs in the city? Are they similar all over to the, the, the world? And as I sat down, I thought to myself, you know, I flew all the way up here. Who am I kidding? What comedians could they possibly have that are going to be equal to the comedians that we have in Boston? I mean, there's no fucking hope that anybody's going to go on stage and be like Steve Sweeney or like Bobcat Goldwaite or like Stephen Wright. I mean, it's impossible. I mean, it's just Toronto, Canada. I mean, I, who knows what's up here? Well, one person knew what was up there, Mark Breslin. And he put on a showcase of probably... 15 comedians and every single comedian fucking destroyed including norm mcdonald wayne fleming and the guy who closed off the show was one of the most powerful acts I'd ever seen in my life. And it looked like, to me, it looked like the waitresses were wrapping up, and I don't know if they were giving checks or how it was, but I'm thinking to myself, like, how is this last guy, after 14 comedians have gone on, how is it possible that this guy is ever going to do well? And it was Mike McDonald. And this guy... I can't even begin to tell you what happened in that room that night because I don't even think I remembered the other people until I got back to my hotel after he got off stage and he got like a partial standing ovation, which for a white comedian to get a standing ovation in the comedy club, you know, happens like 1% of 1% of the time and I got out of the room and Mark looked at me and he said, what do you think? And I said, I just, I, I, I just can't believe what I just saw. I mean, it was just insane. The comedians here are like at an, at another, another level. I mean, they're like, I think the comedians in Boston are great, but these comedians are just as good, if not better. They're all smart. They all have a unique angle. They all have great content. They have all of their own characters. And it opened my eyes to the fact that in business, you can be a big fish in a small pond, and you can be the guy who operates and is successful in an area, and you can get comfortable. And I was starting to get comfortable in Boston. I had all these rooms. I was dominating there with all these comedy clubs and places. And I could get anybody to work, including the comedians from Canada who came down and did really well. But when I went up to Toronto with your invite, where you invited me so graciously, I realized at that moment that I had to change a pattern of mine. I had to... Look further than my own backyard to do business. I had to expand my mind to comedy and business in other places. And I subsequently moved into New York and started working with the New York comedians. I opened up a comedy club in New York. And then I subsequently moved to Los Angeles and started doing business there. And did more national business and worldwide business. And I just wanted to let you know, Mark, uh, in this opening that you were the inspiration for that. And you opened my eyes to the fact that there's greatness all over the world. And you just have to go. And so anybody listening now, if you're an artist or an executive or somebody in any business the most important thing is don't rest on where you are. If you're successful, don't rest in that area where you are. Figure out a way to expand your horizons to other areas and it'll open up new doors and new opportunities and new financial situations and new relationships. And if you are an artist, travel don't be afraid to go to the uk i've had so many artists that i work with i say hey i got a gig in the uk oh man i got an 18 hour flight over there i got a gig in australia gotta go over there to make that money i can make that money in like one night in one hour why am i going over there forget the money go out do the military tours work in London, work in Australia, work in Canada with Mark Breslin. Oh, well, the money isn't the way I want it to be. You should pay him money to work through there the first time. Get the experience, work with different audiences, and open your horizons. And if you are anybody out there, if you do do that, and just take that risk and that leap of faith, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, it's going to change your business. It's going to change your personal life. And it's going to change your perspective on the world and how business is done.
1: Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a
0: time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? How On the air? So just go to BarryKatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just i've just avoided it since we started you know i always thought that it was kind of weird and i thought that maybe people would think a certain way if i i did that and there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me kept reaching out to me over and over again persistent his name was michael purcell and finally he traveled to la and he said you know i gotta meet you so i met the guy and uh... I sat down. He told me that 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued. So I went online and I did some research And I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a, you know, medium, large company, whatever, and you have a thousand checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or 135K a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to GlobalCashCard.com. Schedule a live demo on their system. Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am excited. I get to sit with the king Of
1: comedy. You know, that that makes me wince. That just makes me wince when you say king of comedy.
0: There are no kings anymore. All right. I'm here with the queen of comedy. No,
1: no, no. There are dukes. There are viscounts. Which is higher, duke, a viscount, or an earl? You're asking me? I don't know. But let's say it's a viscount. I'm the viscount. I'll accept that. But kings, uh, no longer. Everything's been democratized.
0: All right. I'll start this over. I'm sitting with the viscount of comedy, Mark Breslin, (laughs) in Canada. Um and i want to tell you a little bit about him uh because it really is uh, this is very unusual for me because normally i interview um executives or studio uh presidents or or, or network uh people occasionally, occasionally i'll interview somebody who is a performer who actually executive produces his own projects is not creatively involved But Mark is a guy who's a little bit different, but because my roots are in comedy, I think it's important that I have him on the show because he has a lineage and a knowledge of the business that's unlike anybody else's and a perspective of Canada, which has been the breeding ground for so many amazing uh, comedians that we know and so many amazing executives that we know from Lorne Michaels to norm mcdonald to kids in the hall tom green howie mandel jim carrey uh russell peters that's uh, just to name a few yeah uh hacks no i'm kidding <laughs> amazing performers. Uh, i'm going to tell you a little bit about mark breslin i have a long bio and a short bio that i've been working on for mark the long bio if i finished telling you about mark breslin the podcast would be over So I'll just briefly tell you a little about him, and then we'll get into everything else, and uh, and it'll be awesome. So Mark Breslin is is the CEO and founder of Yuck Yuck's Comedy Clubs, which has 14 comedy clubs across Canada. Fifteen now that we opened in Montreal this week. All right, 15 comedy clubs. He is the founder and artistic director for the Humber College Comedy Program and a founding member of the Canadian Comedy Awards. He has acted as a producer, executive producer, and story consultant for numerous television programs, such as Late Night with Joan Rivers, Friday Night with Ralph Ben Benmerge, and Kenny vs. Spenny, among others. He is the author and columnist He's an author and columnist and also worked in radio as the program director for Laugh Attack on XM Canada. Breslin is also a much sought-after public speaker. Selected speaking engagements have included the American Comedy Institute in New York City, the Big Bear Comedy Workshop in LA, Association for Campus Entrepreneurs, the Toronto Keynote Address and universities and colleges all over Canada and the world. In 2014, Breslin was named one of the 180 most influential people ever to be born and raised in Toronto. We have so much to talk about, so much, so many comedians, so many artists he's seen, so many executives. Please welcome with me my guest today, Mark Breslin. Thank you, Barry.
1: <laughs> you Thank are you, Barry. Thank you very much for having me on your show. And I have to say, uh, before we, get, we begin, it's a really an honor to be on your show because, you know, when you do something in Canada, you might as well be doing it in North Korea. <laughs> Absolutely nobody knows of the things that I've been trying to do for the past 35 years in my own home country because it just doesn't matter. There's a border and that border is not that porous. And uh, I haven't done a lot of interviews for anything that's been south of the border. So I really do appreciate you putting me
0: on that list. Most of my guests have never done a podcast before. And and so uh, have you ever done a podcast before? No, I don't think so. All right. I love it. I love you being uh, the first one I get to do. Okay. So uh, you said you wanted to comment on my uh, call yeah, I just wanted to think about why that scene in Boston was so good
1: and why that scene in Toronto was so good. And I have a bit of a theory, and I always call it the Liverpool theory. And the Liverpool theory goes something like this. You know, the Beatles did not create their genius. Their genius didn't come together because they lived in London, whereas where everything was happening, they were in Liverpool. They were in a provincial place. They they were in Hamburg, which was even more provincial. And the French uh the french expression uh the french impressionists did not paint in paris they painted on the riviera or in central france it's very advantageous to artists to be out of the center of action because that's where you get good that's where you have lots of time What, what did james joyce say james joyce said an artist needs exile silence and cunning And I think that's true of why there was such a great scene in Boston, why there was such a great scene in Toronto, precisely because it wasn't New York and it wasn't L.A. And the people in Boston and Toronto didn't have an industry breathing down their necks, telling them to create something in a very specific
0: pattern. That's a great that's a great uh, thing that you said. I think that that holds true. And I, 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 I actually believe that's that's valid. However... Harder now because of the Internet. The Internet has
1: changed everything because there's no such thing as an outsider artist anymore in any kind of art. Everybody knows. Everybody has seven fans. Everybody has somebody following them. So nobody feels like an outsider anymore. And that information is as accessible to somebody in Los Angeles or New York as it is to wherever their hometown is. So everything is breaking down, becoming... Uh, less dependent upon geography
0: and i guess that includes my whole country of canada too that's really interesting you are you're so right then why are comedians in new york and la great oh they got great somewhere else for the most part and then moved to new
1: york and los angeles because that's where you have to market yourself but in terms of the pure comedy and purely being interesting and 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 wonderful you could do that anywhere Theoretically, it could be Akron. I mean, why does this happen from time to time? There's a kind of node, uh, a public place where everybody is good. Why Seattle, 1992, was the music all so good? I don't know. Something happened there. Um, but it didn't happen in San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles. It happened in Seattle. That's That's a good example, I think.
0: Cool. So what I'd like to do, which is interesting is I like to at least I feel I hope it's interesting is I like to go way way back Mm. so I want to start by where you grew up what kind of family you grew up in and what was your first inspiration to get into the comedy business okay
1: Those are two questions that are separated by quite a bit of time. At no time when I was a child or an adolescent did I ever think I'd like to be in the comedy business or I'd like to be funny for a living. None of that ever occurred to me. I was born very late in my parents' lives. My father was 53. My mother was uh, 44. I was a late baby. I had two older sisters. One was 19 years older than me. One was 24 years older than me. So um, I grew up with a triple edible complex. Um, Could you explain the triple edible complex? Well, I had three women acting as my mother. Um, so the amount is that it,
0: an actual complex? Or are you just making I'm that just
1: up? I'm just making that up. All that right. was a joke, Barry. Um, I'm
0: sorry I failed you and didn't laugh. That's okay. Not a problem. What's really. interesting is that your your parents' lives yes have mirrored your own life. Yeah, because in, in you just way, had a baby when you're 59.
1: In a way that I never would have predicted. Absolutely correct. Now, Isn't it funny how that happens? Were you a mistake? Um, no, I think they ran out of things to do, um, actually. I think that my mother was um, a career mother. Um, my father was starting to become semi-retired by that point, and I think they needed to fill in the time. Life as a whole, we fill it with stuff. The stuff is called family. The stuff is called work. If you're not filling it with work anymore, then it starts to become it's, family's the other option. So I don't think I was a mistake, no. Um I really don't think. At least that's what they told me. Uh Uh-huh. Keep going. Um, But um, I was completely doted upon um, in ways that were... vastly greater than kids who were really, really wealthy, uh, because I had this situation of being the second coming and I was a really bright child. I could read a newspaper before I was three. Um, I was studied by the American government, came up and, and studied me. They wanted to take me away. This is all true stuff. They wanted to take me away, send me to a special school in Virginia. Um, my parents said, no, we're not gonna let that happen. Um, there was a lot of uh, I, I was way ahead of my... I skipped two grades in school.
0: You skipped two grades.
1: Yeah, they would have skipped me more, but it would have been socially disastrous. As it was, it was even socially disastrous when I, when I hit puberty and I was 11 and all the other kids were, you know, making out. So, I, and I'm small. I'm really small. I'm five foot two. So you can only imagine what it would be like for an 11-year-old who was really tiny to be amongst teenagers. Well, it was no wonder I joined
0: the Communist Party when i was 12 no but what do people you think i'm kidding but it's not a joke it's true um what do people do mark (laughs) yes when they're in situations that are uncomfortable socially i know what you're thinking
1: i was funny to make everybody feel comfortable but that wasn't quite the case i always appreciated humor but i wouldn't say i was the funny guy in class i was witty maybe and I appreciated humor I always liked those sitcoms that I would watch in the 60s like the Beverly Hillbillies and like my mother the car and all the rest of them my parents were very liberal about letting me watch a lot of television comedy at the time even though it was supposed to be my bedtime I got to stay up a little later and watch everything I think that created an interest in comedy but nothing created an interest in comedy more than my cousin Victor giving me a three-year subscription to Mad Magazine when I was eight years old so when I was 8, 9 and 10 I read at that time the best satirical publication in the world and I know that it must have influenced my sense of humor and what I liked and the fact that I took humor seriously but I still there was no model for me to ever think that I was going to do anything in comedy as any kind of a living and that didn't happen till much later till I was in my 20s I was actually a very serious kid very serious kid.
0: So what was the first inspiration about being in comedy?
1: Barry, it was an accident, as so many things are. And people do not give accident its due. Accident is critical. You can work really hard. You can have real good goals. But if the accidents don't roll your way, nothing happens. As I was growing up, I was a serious kid and I was really interested in performance and theater and literature and art. And I loved Bob Dylan and I loved Jackson Pollock and I loved Norman Mailer and I loved Philip Roth. And that all sat there because later on when I started to get into comedy, I would ask myself, "Okay, who's the Bob Dylan here? Who's the Philip Roth here? Who's the Leonard Cohen here? I kind of aimed high on a kind of literary basis. And at the time in the 70s, when I started doing comedy, there were actually comics who were kind of rooted in that in that kind of way of doing things. Which is why I loved Stephen Wright right from the beginning. And I loved Emo Phillips right from the beginning. And Gilbert Gottfried right from the beginning. Because I could, I could kind of relate them to the people in music and art and literature that I really loved. So... I graduated with a degree in English literature, and I was a good student. Which will qualify you to drive any cab here in Canada. Correct, exactly. So there wasn't going to be a job, but there was going to be graduate school. All my friends were going to graduate school. It didn't really turn me on, and that summer I got a job handing out pamphlets at a place called Harbourfront in Toronto. Harbourfront was an area of the lake that had just been bought by the federal government for a billion dollars, and it was very controversial that they spent that kind of money. And they wanted to turn it into all kinds of different things in development. But they couldn't do that without putting even more money in. So they had to get the public on their side. So they started putting on what I'll call bread and circuses and doing bands and all kinds of things uh, as people came down. I was the guy who had to just hand out pamphlets,
0: urban renewal issue pamphlets, because I was interested in in urbanology at the time, too. But you're like a – I mean, you don't want to say this about yourself, but you were like a gifted – well beyond in the top 1% of 1% of 1% of the population in can and the world. And you have that kind of mind and you're passing out pamphlets? Yeah. Why? Why didn't you utilize your mind to... to, to- because within two years, I ran the entire place. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You have
1: to understand that, um, you know, that's just an opportunity. When I worked for Joan Rivers, um, my first, uh, my, when I got there, they gave me a, a windowless room that I shared with boxes of potato chips. And by the time two years had passed, I had the big corner office and was producing the whole show. So, you know, you have to look for opportunities, but it was also the seventies and people didn't look for opportunities because people weren't as obsessed with success as they are now. We were all obsessed with living in the moment. And let me tell you from a spiritual point of view barry i've spent most of my life trying to live in the moment if you can appreciate that paradox this is really what i i want this is really what i crave so i didn't think about the future because nobody in the 70s thought about the future everybody was just having fun or everybody was just rooted in this is it this is now this is what we do this is where i find myself
0: now talk about just real briefly yourself socially because you're five foot two yeah you're more gifted than everybody else. You're moving up in the companies that you're working in. How are you with women knowing that you're five foot two and uh you're you know, you you have this Martin Short quality about you, which is your I'm not saying No, you're... it's fine to say it. It's
1: absolutely true. And I'm motivated a lot by um by women and trying to meet women at this point because you know, just being me isn't enough. But I found when I stood on a stage, isn't it interesting, I gained 18 inches
0: immediately. Right? <laughs> Where um, did you gain it? On my feet, okay, unfortunately. But, um, so, you're, 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 so what you're saying is, is that you're... I
1: didn't have a date and I didn't have a real date till I was 22. And I didn't lose my virginity until I was 24. But at that point, I'd already started being in show business. And it exploded
0: for me socially and sexually. So you you decide you want to start doing stand up. Nope. Never wanted to do stand up. Didn't decide anything everything was decided for me by accident. right, so take me through the accidents. So I'll take
1: you through the accidents. So I'm working for this this government Mm -hmm. company on the lake and I'm telling um, the people who are booking the bands that they're booking lousy bands and they think, well if you think you can do a better job, come on up in the office and work for us. Do that job. So I started booking bands because I always went out. Every night of the week when I was in university, I went out. I went to see theater. I went to see poets. I went to see bands. There were no comedy clubs and there were no places to see comedy in 1974
0: in in Toronto um not even comedians know how Jay Leno says we didn't have comedy clubs so we worked in strip clubs in between the dancers there wasn't anything like that
1: probably had that but I didn't go to strip clubs I was just never a strip club guy so the I don't mind if the strippers come over to my place and pay me but other than that I don't really like strippers or strip clubs got it so um, but there was no real place to see what what you'll think of as modern stand-up comedy mm-hmm. um, at the time it hadn't even crossed my mind except when I was working at Harborfront and by now the summer had passed I was already working you know full-time at the place I'd given up all interest in graduate school I'd been bitten by the bug of show
0: business and they said let's do a comedy night so I said okay okay so they they said let's do a comedy yeah. night now you're saying There's no stand-up comedy in in Toronto or Canada. They say let's do a comedy. What's the impetus if there's no comedians? It was a gong show. It was really
1: a gong show to start. But you know, as the weeks started to wear on, there were fewer people getting gonged off, and somehow the word got out that you could come down and you could do your own stuff, and there wasn't going to be a lot of censorship. And that was a big deal for me then and now, is an absolutely uncensored environment. You start censoring people in terms of language, you'll start censoring their ideas. You start censoring their ideas, you start censoring their politics. And I also came, as I alluded to, to you, from a kind of radical political background that I'd invented for myself. It did not come from my parents. I was not a red diaper baby in any way, shape or form. My parents were horrified by my politics, but they were informed by the 60s. I was part of... A group that was trying to get um, American draft dodgers settled in Toronto when I was 15 years old.
0: You were trying to get American draft dodgers settled, settled in, in ter- Toronto
1: when I was 15 years old. I was part of a movement, part of a group that was doing this, finding homes for them, finding, you know, resources for them. Uh, I was always, uh, you know, I was always a blue state kind of guy. <laughs> as Canada, as blue state as Canada is, I was really blue state. Let's just put it that way. But I went to all the demonstrations in the 60s. I did all that kind of thing. And it all sort of made its, had its impact on me and how I liked things to be. And I always thought that the role of a comedian
0: was somebody to tell the truth. Had you ever seen a comedian in no. person? No. Had you ever seen a comedian in a film? <laughs> Have you ever seen like a stand-up special? No, you no,
1: they didn't exist. But what we used to do is listen to records in the basement. What records? Like Bill Cosby, um, uh, Robert Klein. I'm trying to think of all the people. Lenny Bruce, of course. Mort Saul. We used to go over to each other's uh, basements, get high, and listen to this stuff. Uh, uh, Cheech and Chong, of course. Records were really important in those days. We're talking now, you know, tail end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. So that's where my comedy education came from. Plus, I used to watch Ed Sullivan as a kid, uh-huh. and I used to see all those comics on those, those, you know, warty Jewish guys that were so ugly and yet so brilliant. And they could never get on TV today because they, they have a, you know, something on their face that wouldn't let them get on TV today. But they were brilliant guys. And I love the brilliance and I love the honesty. And then I discovered Woody Allen films about the time that he put out uh, – Bananas uh, played again, Sam, and it blew my mind because I felt that for the first time ever there was somebody up there talking about the very things that I felt that I thought. So Woody Allen is absolutely important to me. He's the ur comic for me. But I still haven't been on stage yet. What I do is they ask me to go on stage and MC the event, the the comedy night. The Gong Show. Nobody else will do it. And they said, you have a, we were looking at your resume. You have a background in public speaking, which I did, but it was serious public speaking, you know, no nukes. (laughs) Uh, But I went on. I wasn't afraid of a crowd. And Why weren't you afraid of a crowd? Because I'd already been on stage doing a lot of speeches, political speeches and things. So I wasn't afraid of the crowd. Um, And I did it straight for a while. And then I throw in a line here and a funny line there. And slowly, organically, over a couple of years, I had a kind of act, an MC act, but it was an act. There were real lines. There
0: were real bits. It was all going swimmingly well. Were there any other stand-up comedians that you ever saw during those two years in Toronto? Yes, all the people who were working on the comedy nights No, but, would come down. but at the time, you, the first event you put together was a gong show. The gong show turned into a real um so most of the people who went on that night were stand-ups trying to be stand-ups yes and most of them didn't have a clue what to do or they were doing old Mm -hmm. jokes Mm
1: -hmm. um and then you know names and these names won't mean much larry horowitz shows up and larry horowitz is a kid who grew up in the suburbs watching the tonight show every single night watching those comics saying i'd love to do that and it's 1975 and he thinks i'll put together six minutes and they're credible they're not groundbreaking but they're credible and he starts getting good and then there's another guy who comes on and he's okay and then there's a guy named Paul Mandel who blows our all our minds because he's like a Lenny Bruce type um, he goes on, he brings his divorce papers on <laughs> he reads his divorce papers and he throws sticky buns at the crowd and, um, and then uh, he's a perfect Bob Dylan look and he uh, writes Bob Dylan impressions parodies it's starting to feel modern now Barry and I feel like I'm kind of in the middle of something maybe kind of and then i get fired i get fired from the complex as everybody does because they decide they don't want to uh fund it anymore the federal government isn't going to fund it anymore it's going to be community run and i'm without any place to play my friends are without any place to play please mark find you're the you're the businessman ha uh find us someplace to play my friend Um, runs a community center and he does a uh, a folk night on saturdays i call him up i say can you can we put on some uh comics in between the folkies he said yeah sure bring them all down but the comics hate the folkies and the folkies hate the comics (laughs) because the comics are you know wearing black and sitting in smoke chains, smoking cigarettes and swearing every other word and the the folkies are all really full of love and They're wearing earth tones and the reeking of patchouli oil. Didn't work. But I got the best idea of my life, which was approach the community center and say, Can I have a night? I'll do a comedy night. Barry, this is nothing now. There's thousands of them all over North America, but it had never been done. It had never been done in Toronto, never been done in Canada. And the people from the community center said, Sure. $38 Thirty-eight dollars to rent the room, and you got to be out by ten thirty. What night did you choose? Wednesday. They chose it for me. The worst night for comedy and show business. Wednesday. Who goes out on a Wednesday? So, <clears throat> uh, it was a, a lousy room. It was. It was had been a bowling alley. It was long and narrow, uh, with a stage at the end, and a little stage, and we were doing maybe forty people, forty-five people. Half full, nine weeks into this, I get a call from a reviewer at the Globe and Mail, which is like the New York Times of, of Canada. And he said, listen, I hear there's something interesting going on on Wednesday nights. I'd like to come down and review it and talk to you. Is that okay? I said, sure. His name was Jack of Pizza. And he came down, sat there scribbling all night, interviewed me. He said, I think I can get something in on Saturday. He said, okay, sounds great. Saturday morning, I wake up and I had one of the first uh, answering machines in the city and people would leave messages and i'd get up late usually and there'd be one or two answering and you know there'd be one or two messages left but there were 42 messages on this it's wrong who died and every time I, pl- I played it, it said, Mark, go out and get a Globe and Mail. Mark, you got to get a Globe and Mail. Get out of your bed right now, put on some clothes, and get a Globe <laughs> and Mail. So I ran out and I got the Globe and Mail, and there was a full page article on this experience that this reporter had, followed by another full page on the inside of the entertainment section. Wow. Th- that was on. The Saturday, so the next Wednesday, I went down to the uh, community center about an hour early as I usually do to put the room together, and there were 934 people. I counted them all around the block waiting to get in, and it never stopped from there.
0: 932 people. Yeah, 34. and you had a room that held how many people? 100 maybe. So did you do nine shows that night?
1: No. Remember, we had to be out by 10:30. No, I told everybody uh, past 110 to. Come back another time. And they did. And it was very successful. But, of course, you couldn't make a living out of one night a week. Um, but I had a friend who was a business genius. He came to town. He was studying, getting his master's in, in business at Stanford. And he said, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I'm doing a comedy club. He said, a comedy club? Can I see it? So I took him down. He didn't care about the comedy particularly. But he said, you have a business here. And I said, I do? He said, Yeah. We're going to raise some money, and we're going to open a club for you. You think you can do this six nights a week? I said, yeah, I think so. The demand is there now, and the comics are there now. And this would have been nineteen, closer to 1978, and it took six months, eight months, a year, and we opened up our first full-time club um, in the fanciest part of Toronto, in Yorkville, in 1978,
0: and that was the beginning of big things. What was the investment to open the doors?
1: Um, about 40000 cash, and we had about $28,000 in uh
0: money from the bank as a bank sort of as a float. Sixty eight thousand and you had partners, financial partners.
1: Yeah, we w- took people out for lunch to the cheapest place we could find, which was the Underground Railroad. It was a soul food restaurant that had a dollar seventy nine brunch on Sunday. And we would take them out um an hour at a time. We'd do three guys in one night, in one day, and we get a thousand dollars out of them. And that's how we raised the forty grand. And what did they get for their money? They got a small piece of the action um, later on with time. Most of them were they were all paid back twice, three times as much, but they had no voting shares. My friend is a very smart guy so that they could never challenge me. But it was still uh, they're still a minority holder. And they still have some some I think they have about six percent left of the original company. That's cool. If I ever sell it, they'll get some some real money out of it. Um, and so you open up and what happens? Well, you know. Barry, you alluded to the fact that when you went in, it was a dump. Um, And it was a dump, but it was all black. You remember that? Yes, I do. Do you know why it was all black? No. There were two reasons. One, they had a sale on black paint that week. (laughs) So I painted it black. And the second reason was I wanted to emphasize its theatricality and not take anything away from the stage. And I figured if I create a room in limbo, like a theater, because I was really into you know, off-Broadway-style theaters, of which there were many, Um, then they won't look around at the lights or the disco ball or anything like that. They'll pay attention to what's on stage. And to this day, what do you really want out of a comedy club? What you want is focus on the act. No drink machines going, no uh, weird decor that would be distracting. You want a perfect sound system um you don't you want the this is obvious the chairs all facing the stage so that's what you're really buying when you go to a comedy club you're buying what's not there
0: not not what's there got it and so tell me when you knew that holy shit i'm on to something
1: this is crazy i still even though we were packed when we were opening Well, when we opened, remember, we were only charging three bucks a a head, and we didn't even have a liquor license to start with, but we were successful. We weren't financially successful, but we were successful. Everybody knew about us. It was the talk of the town. I was on every cover of every magazine and every newspaper in the country. We knew we were doing well, but I still thought— this is a fad. It'll last a couple of years, and then I'll have to go back to school and, you know, do something else. You really thought it was going to be a fad? Yes,
0: I thought you it was- spent sixty-eight thousand dollars of other people's money because you thought it was going
1: to be a fad. Sixty-eight thousand of other people's money in nineteen seventy-five dollars too, which Mark, would probably uh, be two hundred and fifty thousand, three hundred thousand today.
0: I don't know you that well, uh- but I will say this: there's no way that you go into any business. And think it's going to be a fad. Yes, there is a way. There is a way if you don't think it's a business to begin with. If you didn't think it was a be- business to begin with, you wouldn't have done it. Not true. I wanted the attention. See, remember, you can I'm... You put on- attention anywhere. Barry, I'm on stage every night. You can be on stage anywhere Where? All night, wherever you want No.
1: There's no other place to perform. It's 1978. So you, did it as
0: an, so you did it for your ego. Yeah. Enemy girls. Did it work? Yeah. Okay. It worked
1: beautifully. Only as time went on, around the, I'd say around 1984 or so, it became clear that this was going to be something that I would be doing, not for the rest of my life, for a long, long time. Because that's when we started to expand to other cities. Mm -hmm. And we started, we opened up in
0: Ottawa. Wait, how long after you were open did you expand to another city? Well, we had a disaster in Montreal in 1980. We opened up here
1: in Montreal in 1980. It lasted for a year and it didn't work. And we blew our brains out
0: and we nearly went bankrupt. So that was the first expansion was Montreal. That's right. So instead of going to a, a city that was all english-speaking city you decide to come to a place in canada you could do any city in canada you decide to do the one that's half french speaking and half english it made sense at the time because
1: there was an already successful club that had opened there called stitches and we saw that that was working but they were i remember that because there was a stitches in boston ah okay Probably not connected. No, but there was a stitches it, and it was doing okay. But we thought it wasn't doing doing it the way we wanted to do it. Um, and the way we did it was extremely punk. We were really influenced by punk at the time, and it was very in your face and very aggressive and and very if you don't like it, get out. And you know, I mean, that reflected in my, in my work on stage. And look, here here's the kinds of things that would happen it would never happen today because this has become such a corporate business and you certainly know that when you're here at Just for Laughs and everybody's on their best behavior and i'm interested in people on their worst behavior that's why i was attracted to the comedy in the first place i just didn't have the the height to be to get into the rock and roll business but uh, because i would have otherwise because I loved punk. I loved the transgression of rock and roll and the transgression of alternative theater. And I was into all that stuff. I was ev- even really influenced by alternative psychology movements and communes. And I would go up to the Claremont experiment, which was like a mini Esalen, mm-hmm. and, and do these dyads with people. And, you know, it was wild stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was going. into all that. Keep going. Okay. So. I'd be on stage and I'd be doing um, I'd be doing my kind of um, insult humor. It was kind of Richard Belzer ish, Don Rickles ish, but but with existential references and people would get up and walk out. They just walk out because they expected they were coming to see Red Skelton. I have to emphasize this about Canada. There is no history of stand up comedy in Canada prior to Yuck Yucks. No history at all. There's history of sketch comedy. Sketch comedy is what the history of, uh, is in the DNA of Canadian comedy. But when I started doing what I was doing, I I did something that nobody else in Canada had ever dared to do, which was use the word I on a stage, because that was considered kind of uh, arrogant and immodest. And Canadians are a modest people. And for me to get up there and go, I think this and I think that, that offended people, I think, more than the actual material itself. But the material itself was plenty offensive. Lots of sex, lots of uh, words you'd never heard on a Canadian stage. I brought the word fuck to a, to a Canadian stage. No one had ever said that before. In fact, I even had uh, people from the RCMP come down, monitor the shows. People from the police monitor the shows to see if I was breaking any obscenity laws. That's how extreme it was. Anyway, people would get up and go. But I used to... I used to hassle them if they would go. I wouldn't just let them walk out. I would say, oh, excuse me, where are you going? You walking out? You going back to your shit lives? Is that what you're doing? Going back to your shit Christian lives? Is that what you're doing? Well, let me tell you something. And I would pull out my wallet and I'd say, go, go wherever you want to fucking go. Because the Jew has your money. The Jew has your money. And I would get everybody to chant, the Jew has your money. The Jew has your money. And they would leave. And then they would think that was, uh, we would all think that was over. But you see, they couldn't believe that I was actually the owner. So they would write the owner a letter about what had happened. Then I would simply take that letter. I had a stamp made up, which is about four by four. Remember the days of rubber stamps? Mm-hmm. And I would ha- the stamp would say, eat shit and die, <laughs> the Yuck Yucks management. And I would stamp the letter and I would mail it back to them. <laughs> this was the spirit that we were trying to get going. It was very much an us versus them spirit. It was a generational clash spirit. Again, none of this happens anymore that i can that I can tell. People call themselves alternative comics, but you know even the alternative comics are kind of nice to everybody. In fact, if anything, they're even nicer. So uh, we went into Montreal thinking we could do it right, but the times were wrong. the deal was wrong. everything was wrong about it, and we collapsed after a year. We went back to Toronto licking our wounds and we didn't try again until nineteen eighty four with Mike McDonald, by the way, and the way that happened was I had a promoter in Uh, Ottawa, who said, um, listen, I'd like to try Mike McDonald for a month. And I was repping him. I'd like to try Mike McDonald for a month in this space. Um, What do you think? I said, yeah, we'll try it. The thing was a huge success. And then the promoter said to me, why are we closing this down? Why don't we just do a whole bunch of other acts? Why don't we call it Yuck Yucks? Yuck Yucks Ottawa, 1984. We opened up. It was a smash, an absolute smash. And after that, We tried Niagara Falls. No, sorry, Hamilton, because there was a kind of ersatz club there, and I knew the guy, and I said, how would you like a better space? We'll finance it for you. We'll fold your club in. That worked. Then we tried Edmonton, and it worked in Edmonton. And when we knew it worked in Edmonton, which was a long way away, we knew it would work anywhere in Canada, and we started opening up clubs like crazy. And in a two-year period between 84 and
0: 86, I guess we opened up about nine clubs And so you're expanding at a rapid rate and you have comedians that are working the Toronto room, but you don't have an enormous amount of comedians to work these other rooms. What are you doing? I'm sending them out. I'm creating a circuit.
1: It's vaudeville all over again. The guy in Toronto simply calls us up and says, "Okay, um, I can take a month off work. Can you put me in all your rooms? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I would put him in all the rooms. And then eventually that led to creating an agency. And then the agency fed
0: the, fed the clubs. Now, we're going to get into some juicy stuff. Good. I love juicy stuff. So one of the things that you are um, talked about a lot and much maligned for is the fact that you're a very competitive guy. No, actually, I'm not. I'm
1: actually non-competitive, as you will see as we have this discussion, because I know where this is going. Where's it going? It's going, you're going to tell me, you're going to tell everybody how I have a vertically integrated company that books comics into, uh, the comics I, I agent into the rooms I own.
0: Right? Uh, that wasn't where I was going, but I can go there if you want. Okay.
1: I got ahead of you.
0: You keep going. That's okay. you got to go ahead of me. Look at you, look at where you're at right now. I mean, you're, you're, you're at a much evolved stage than I am. I'm just, uh. I'm just a squirrel trying to get a nut here. So There's a lot of nuts. Keep, keep collecting. <laughs> I think I'm one of them. So basically what happened was I remember there were comedians who were starting to work in other towns and other cities. And there were certain comedy venues that were starting to open in certain places. Like Montreal started opening some comedy places. And... um uh, And then there were other comedy places that would open up in cities where you did comedy. Now, when you went into Montreal, and there was another comedy venue there, you were okay with going into Montreal and competing with that other comedy club. Now, you failed, but you were okay with going in. Other places came into your areas where there were comedy clubs, and the word on the street was, if you are a Yuck Yucks comedian... You will never work for me again if you work that club. I would never have quite
1: put it that way, but I will put it a different way. My East Coast friends always say, when you go to the dance, you dance with the man who brung you. So I was opening up um, all kinds of... uh, I was the pioneer. I was opening up all kinds of opportunities and venues for people. And all I asked was, look, if I'm going to do that, all I ask is that you perform in my places rather than somebody across the street if there's a room that i don't have a room in well then go ahead and do it because i'm not in winnipeg and that carries on right to this day but you know that's not the real issue barry the real issue is the lack of reciprocity between american and canadian immigration law what am i talking about goes this way do you know how many, when I opened up? Do you know how
0: many American... you're like Reagan during the Iran-Contra? <laughs> well, you, you got to be a bit of a politician. You just, you just to be Bob me. and weave. I'm on one subject, and you're going. No, to the other I'm one. going
1: right for the center of the
0: issue well, of that just, subject. Before you do, yeah, okay. You're creating a number of opportunities for these guys. Yes. Do you remember how much you're paying them to headline their clubs? <sighs> a no, week? Whatever the going rate probably was, but back no, then the it go- was wait. Now we're going to, I have a smile on my face. Did so you remember? I'm not going toe to toe. I have a smile on my face. The rate was $900 for the week. Okay. Now you say what the going rate was. Who set the going rate? Oh, clubs in the States, all kinds of clubs all over the place. Mark, you just said the border was not porous. But we knew what was going on. We knew what was going on. You think the comedy clubs in the United States were paying $900 for headlighters? That weren't on TV? Yeah. Yeah, unless you had, unless you could bring people
1: in. And remember, you're going way back now. You're going back to 84, 85, 86. I know, but that was the boom. The boom only meant that a lot of really untalented people got work. <laughs> the amount of talented people in, in the system has always been more or less
0: the same. What changes is the amount of people you need to make the machine but you go. You were always a guy, and this is what I heard about you, and I've always heard about you. You were always a guy that just—even when a guy got big, or a woman who was in comedy got big. Right now, if a comedian gets big in the States, and they're working the comedy club circuit, and they—let's say they went in and they had their deal that was—let's say it was a flat deal of $2,500 for the week. Right. Okay. Okay? And they go in this one time, and something happens this year where it's just— they sell out every seat in the place. But it was a flat $2,500 fee. Okay. Normally the club doesn't give them any extra money. And in that particular situation, if you're charging $20 a person and there's a 1,000 people that came in, there's $20,000 that came in at the door and you paid your comic $2,500, you made $17,000. $500 They're twenty 2500 The next time the comedian goes and they try to book him, they say, hey, listen, you did really well. We're going to give you a bonus to $3,000. And the comedian, their manager agent says, listen, no. What we're going to do now is we're going to do a door deal, okay? We're going to do a door deal. You're going to give us a guarantee of $2,500, but you're going to give us, I'm just throwing it out at the top of my head, 50% of the door. So that if we sell out again, We're going to make 10,000 and you're going to make 10,000. And once that started happening in the 80s and early 90s in the States, because you said we looked at what the States did, you never did that with your artists that really were popping. The Norm McDonald's, the Mike McDonald's, you never did it where you were like, hey, we'll do a door deal. You always did it. You paid them a little more, the big guys, but you never let them participate in the people that they brought in. And yes, you were responsible for, for the comedy club. You were responsible for giving them the opportunity. But Barry, they never stayed in the country long enough for them to be uh, in that position.
1: Norm McDonald left very quickly. Mike McDonald left very quickly. And um, but actually... They came my, ba- but I, they came back. When they came back, then they had different deals. You know, right now, I can tell you that there's tons of acts that we, we book, but they have... They're all acts out of the States, but there's tons of acts we book where we have to give 70% of the Door eighty percent of the door. I know ninety percent. I know door, now, which hurts now. Now, but we only do it now because we have to do it now. But there, there are no Canadian acts that we do that for because there are no Canadian acts with that kind of draw. Not one now. Not that I can think of. Nikki Payne. Does that name mean anything? Yes. To you? Okay. Nikki Payne actually sells tickets. There's a real difference between when she's in the club and just Joe Blow's in the club from Canada. Big difference. We notice it. She's got that kind of fan.
0: So you're trying to tell me, this is fascinating for our audience, you're trying to tell me in the entire country of Canada, I'm not talking about people who've come to the States and gotten big, I'm talking about the entire country of Canada, you're telling me that there's only one person who can draw. Pretty much. The other ones play um, theaters, and we're not in the theater business. So So when you you say the the other
1: ones, you mean like Jerry D. Jerry D actually does still play Yuck Yucks, uh, and he does theaters. But he still plays Yuck Yucks when he wants to develop new material. And yeah, he's on a he's on a door deal.
0: But how many comedians he does are that there, very rarely? How many comedians are there in Canada? Only really known in Canada that are our draw. Very few,
1: very few. Fingers of one hand. Well, um, tell
0: me the names. Bread Butt, Bread Butt, Brett Jerry Butt. D, Nikki Payne. I'm just thinking. Who else would do that uh Ron James Ron James so only those four people can sell out a comedy club at yuck yucks every night oh yeah but they wouldn't do that they, they I might know as, that they might as well do uh I know that but I'm just saying there's a
1: maybe Deb f- did Giovanni
0: maybe is she from this country or yes. is she from okay yeah uh, I'm I'm giving you the list so it's a tiny list and that's very shocking because you think of canada as a massive country with massive creative people and the fact that can you imagine in the united states if there was only five comedians who could sell out a comedy so uh, so ask yourself why you're not going deep enough no you're here because i'm asking you why because there's no
1: star system in in canada that's the problem There is no hierarchical star system where, you know, the media gets a hold of somebody. They write about it. They promote them. That's how they get. um, How many television shows do you think are produced here? I think there's three. Exactly. How about this? There's a comedy network here in Canada. How many shows did they produce this year? Zero. Yeah. How many shows did they produce the year before? One. And what was it? Match Game. And I'm sorry, but Match Game isn't going to make anybody a star. Except for those thin microphones. Yeah, except for the thin microphones. And before a match game, what was it? How many? One? Yep. It was called Hot Box. It was a pretty good show. It was Pat Thornton. But you know, you can't become famous from one from one show on a cable network, <laughs> no matter how many times they run it, if they only run it for a year. This is why everyone leaves. But what about a guy like
0: uh Isn't that the real issue? If you'll oblige me, maybe. Sure. What about the guy like Pat Bullard, who was on television every night? He couldn't sell out comedy clubs? I don't think now he could. I think there was a time when he might have been able to. He might have been able to. He was
1: on every night. It was on every night, but he wasn't doing comedy every night. He was doing a a talk show, uh, not a talk show, a game show. So he's not necessarily associated with that particular genre. Mm -hmm. It also depends on the city. Some cities are more open than other cities to it. You know, I find out West that people are more star conscious than in say, Ontario, where people are more blasé. Because there's a lack of a Canadian star system and not just in comedy, um, it's very difficult for any uh, performer to get traction that can result in remuneration. That's always been a problem. This goes If you read stuff that goes back to the 30s and 40s, you'll even find it. But what can you say about a country that doesn't even have a talk show where somebody can come on and
0: promote themselves? Pretty pathetic, huh? And for those of us, uh, our audience listening... What is the reason for that? A lot of reasons. Lack of money,
1: lack of capital, lack of risk capital. I always thought this country just needed a mafia,
0: you know, to put in some risk capital to uh, show business things. But so, so in other words, if there was a millionaire in this country. Billionaire. Who wanted to do a talk show and could just go on a network and say, listen, I'm going to pay you $2 million for the space from 11 to, to midnight five nights a week here you go here's your money and I'm going to put on the kind of show I want to do there's actually
1: do it. a guy who's, who does that and the problem is he's terrible he's a, his own host and it's a vanity project and he's not very good I've done the show um, so nobody watches it but he puts it on um, but he's got a lot of money and he, and he does that it's not anything that's really on people's radar particularly
0: um, I mean because people in the United States will never believe that there's not a talk show in Canada will never believe that there's only three three original programs that have been made in the past god knows how long three
1: original comedy programs. yeah that's what i'm saying uh but we're very good with um uh space uh, we do a lot of sci-fi shows uh we do a lot of uh kind of um what do they call them they're procedurals you know yeah uh, we do a lot of those a lot of dramas but comedies Nope, not good, and the reason is, I'll blame you guys, you Americans, cuz you don't pick them up and you don't broadcast them. And unless you get that kind of money coming, in, how are we going to create our our uh, how are we going to create our shows? Sitcoms are expensive.
0: Well, how does the United States create the shows? Because
1: they have 300 million people living there. We have 30. And the underpopulation of Canada is the thing that informs every single business decision across the board, whether it's lumber, uh, show business, comedy clubs, doesn't matter. It's underpopulated. That's the problem. Look, here's an anecdote you'll like. I think. I think um, I will. Very early in the game, people came to me and said, um, "I have a draw. You should, you know, you you should pay me more." And I would say, nobody really draws. The club draws. The concept draws. People uh, who know nothing about comedy say, oh, "We want a funny evening out. Let's go to that yuck yuck place." You don't particularly draw. And they said, no, I do. I saw, and I heard that over and over again. And we're going back to 1978, 1979. So out of frustration, what I did was I went to the Roselawn Cemetery and I started copying names down. Sam Schwartz, Milton Silverberg, uh, Etta uh, Greenberg. And then I started running them as the ads. This week, Sam Schwartz. This week, Etta Goldenberg. People who were dead. I was advertising people who were dead. And the numbers did not go down, and the numbers did not go up.
0: That's hilarious. That's hilarious.
1: Now, the internet is changing things slowly. People are getting, you know, uh, small small followings of super fans that will travel around and see them. So, you know, we're able to be a little more... Uh, Flexible when it comes Mm -hmm. to remunerations now, but it still hasn't hit the critical mass level yet where people make a big, big difference because they've got, you know, 2000 Twitter followers. It just doesn't quite work that way yet. You need
0: 200,000 Twitter followers, frankly, to be able to um, move the needle. Got it. That's fascinating. So, Mark, I wanted to switch gears a second because you did something really, really unique and special uh, that sort of was groundbreaking. And could you talk about the Humber College comedy program? Sure. Here's the
1: essence, the essential question. Can you teach somebody to be funny? That's what they asked me when they came from Humber College, which is an arts college uh, in Toronto and a very respected jazz program, which would be just second to Juilliard. They wanted to do something which was similar in comedy. And they said, can you teach people to be funny? And I really thought about it for a while. And I thought, well, it stands to reason anything that can be taught, that can be learned can be taught. But can you learn something in an academic environment? Would it make it better? than just going out and doing sets at night or uh, being in a sketch troupe and learn by doing. And I came to the conclusion that you can't teach people to be funny, but you can teach them to be funnier. And that's what we've been doing for 12 years. So every year we graduate um, 50 people, roughly, uh, with a degree in comedy. It's a two-year program in which they must study all genres of comedy. So even if they want to be sketch performers, they have to learn how to do stand-up. Even if they want to be stand-ups, they have to learn how to write a movie script. And um, many of our our graduates have gone on to some fame and some fortune. Nathan Fielder is of a graduate. Course. Is a graduate. He's you know no, um, he's really great. Uh, Levi McDougal um, is a graduate. Nikki Payne is a graduate. Um, there's a lot of behind the scenes people that are graduates, and then there are people who are graduates who are just you know making a living, doing stand up, going back and forth on the on different circuits. So we're really quite proud of that. It's a it's something unlike anything else. In the, um, in the world, there's no other equivalent school. There are places you can go and learn to be stand-ups. There are places you can take Second City courses and become a good sketch performer. No place that you can become comprehensively good at comedy and walk away with a certificate. Now, the funny part about this to me is, um, you know, when, of course, when I was starting, there was nothing, absolutely nothing like this. And my parents hated my choice, my life choice. They hated it and they hated it all the way to their deaths in fact perhaps it led them to an early death for all i know (laughs) but now it's become such so institutionalized through humber that the parents will come to the final year show and come up to me and critique the show tell me how uh they hope their son uh gets his green card they're totally behind their children to become comics Interesting. That's how far the business has gotten. And here's another indicator. People have gotten funnier. I don't mean comics. I mean people have generally gotten funnier. And the evidence is weddings. Go to a wedding. There's always the uncle. He's the MC. 25 years ago, you couldn't sit through the 15 minutes that he did. And now this this amateur somehow knows the structure of a joke knows how to create a segue because he's watched so much comedy that he's actually become a competent amateur and this is happening everywhere now
0: got it take me through uh, another inspirational thing you uh, seem to do a lot of is writing lots of books i mm. believe you've written four books so far
1: uh five actually um five books five so books far. the last two books um, were audiobooks that were histories of Canadian comedy. And I would have clips, and then I would narrate the clips and explain why these people are important. There would be about 40 different comics on each uh, five-disc package. And they were very good. The first one especially was incredibly well-reviewed and sold really, really well. Before that, I wrote a kind of—I'll um, call it an autobiography, but it's not linear and it's not— um. It doesn't proceed, uh, you know, in terms of uh, beginning, middle, and end, in terms of time. It jumps all over the place in terms of uh, themes. So there'll be a chapter on sex. There'll be a chapter on uh, parenting. There'll be a chapter on politics. There'll be a chapter on drugs. And it did very well. And in fact, um, one of those chapters has been optioned now as a screenplay that I wrote, and I'm hoping that it'll get made. And in Canada, that means you move from 0% chance to an 8% chance of actually having it made.
0: <laughs> you also created a uh, national comedy search to find the best comedian in Canada.
1: Well, you know, Barry... That's something I guess I could be proud of, but frankly, who isn't doing
0: that? Like, but but, but you did it about uh, fifteen years ago, before anybody else did. That's true. That's right. So, um, uh, it yeah, might've, it might've I'm been happy over, about it. It might have been over twenty years ago. Well, yeah, I think it was 1990. Yeah, twenty four years ago. God, 1990 was twenty four years ago. Isn't that unbelievable? I know. Did any of the people who won go on to do great things? Yeah, I think so.
1: I mean, I think they got the green card. That's <laughs> what that's what going on to something in Canada means. Did you get your immigration status?
0: (laughs) Talk about how you got to produce Joan Rivers from a guy in Canada doing something to producing an executive producing a national talk show, which is, you know, you've never done before. Remember how I told you that so much depends on accident earlier in our talk?
1: Well, it was a complete and total fluke and an accident. Joan uh, was starting her show on Fox. I guess it would have been 1985. She'd made the break with NBC and didn't make any friends in doing it. She knew she had to hire a comedian comedy producer, but just about everybody would already be kind of – nobody would want to risk the wrath of NBC. So she had to look a little further afield. So here's the accident. There's a show in Canada called Canada AM – it's a morning show, national morning show. It's the national morning show. And um, one after, one morning they had Marjorie Gross. Do you remember Marjorie Gross? No. The wonderful, late, great Marjorie Gross. She was a stand-up and she wrote uh, mo- many of the best Seinfeld scripts. And she died unfortunately from uh, cancer when she was quite young. Wrote, by the way, an amazing piece in New Yorker uh, about her, her impending death six weeks before she died. It's an incredibly funny piece about her own cancer. You should look it up. It's called- Cancer Becomes Me and I try to turn everybody on to this okay. piece anyway um they asked me to come on the show and just talk about comedy after Marjorie went on so about a year after this Joan was in the hairdressers and a woman comes up to her and says, Joan, I know you've got a new show going on. And uh, I've got a niece who's really funny. Um, she's from Canada, but she lives here now. And Joan says, Okay, send me the uh, send me the stuff. Send me a tape. Do you have a tape? Do you have a tape? Send me a tape. So the woman sends Joan a tape. Joan puts a bunch of tapes on. She's watching them. Maybe she's working out home while she's watching them. And for some reason, Marjorie goes on, does her stuff. Joan doesn't shut the tape off, lets it run. And then I come on and I start pontificating about theories of comedy and all kinds of stuff. And Joan wonders, who's this? I've never even heard of this guy. So she calls Howie Mandel. Howie Mandel had been my friend when he lived in Canada. And Howie says, oh, yeah, Mark Breslin, really interesting guy. He might be your guy. So I get a call. It's Friday night. I'm about to go on stage. And somebody says, Mark, there's a phone call for you. And I said, no, I'm about to go on stage. This is a good time. They went, I think it's Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, why would Joan Rivers be calling me? And you know what the first thought was? I had taken inadvertently one of her lines and she was going to call me and call me out on it. So I pick up the phone, it is Joan Rivers and she tells me that she's got this show coming up and would I fly to LA and talk to her about it? And I went, Uh, okay, when do you want me to come in? She said, I'll fly you in next Thursday. Is that good? I went, "Uh, yeah, okay, where do you like to stay? Uh, The Shadow Marmot. Oh, I love the place. I'll set, set it up for you. So all that weekend I said to my friends, I'm going to L.A. because Joan Rivers wants to talk to me about comedy. And they all said, idiot, she doesn't want to talk to you about comedy. She's going to offer you a job. I said, come on, give me a break. That's not going to happen. And when I got there, that's exactly what happened. She offered me the job of being the comedy producer.
0: Now, what was your responsibilities? Um,
1: probably the same as Jim McCauley's was on
0: the late Jim McCauley. So, so you were responsible show. for booking stand-ups? Yes. I was bu- uh, Who was, bu- was the first stand-up comedian you booked on the Joan Rivers show? Bruce Smirnoff. Wow, interesting. Bruce
1: Smirnoff. Uh, and the second one I booked was Harry Basil.
0: Harry Basil
1: killed so well, and it was all visual stuff, that um, after that, they came to me and they said, okay, whoever you book, we trust you now. You don't even have to show us tapes or anything. And I got an amazing review about a month later from TV Guide, who said, uh, we were watching The Joan River Show, we like this, we don't like that, but whoever's booking the comics is the best comedy booker And in the in the country, needless to say, I made sure everybody in that office got a copy of TV Guide, and it was a wonderful job. She was wonderful to work with. I was just in absolute heaven. Um, you know, I I didn't have to work that hard. I got invited to everything. It was amazing. And then nine months down the road, Joan was fired. So she was fired on a Friday, and I wrote my resignation letter and put it on the desk of the executive producer who was the vice president of Fox. And I went home and I figured, that's it. I'll go home. That's it. I'll go back to Toronto. Why did I do that? I felt a loyalty to Joan, a very strong loyalty. That loyalty was repaid later on, by the way, a couple of years later, when she was doing her New York show, she flew me in to work on her New York show. And I said, Joan, there's nothing for me to do here. She said, I know. New York's a wonderful town. Enjoy it. Wonderful. So I got to live in New York at the Plaza Hotel, smallest room at the Plaza Hotel. But the S- Plaza Hotel, I got to live there for about eight months while we were doing while she was doing that afternoon show. Even though I don't think I ever booked anybody onto the show. But let me go backwards. So, uh I I told uh I I put my resignation in and the next day there's a knock on my door while I'm out using the pool in my in my little house in the hills. And I go up and it's the vice president of Fox. He said I was just driving by. I thought we pop in. Well, if you know anything about the streets in Los Angeles, you know, you don't just pop by these winding streets in the hills. Yeah, I, I couldn't find my own house half the time. So he made a concerted effort. Of course, he wanted to come to see me. And he said, look, why did you resign? And I said, well, because I feel my loyalties were to Joan. He said, if it were okay with Joan, would you stay on the show? And I said, well, yeah, maybe. He said, I'd like to offer you a better, much better position. I'd like you to produce the show, to be the producer of the new show. I said, who's going to who's going to be the host he said that's part of your job you got to help find hosts we'll do a lot of different hosts see who who comes out of the woodwork see who's good i said well let me call joan first so i called joan she said oh of course take it don't be a fool just let me know who's let me know everything that's happening and that's what i did who hosted the
0: show after Jones? Oh God,
1: there were so many. We used some DJs, famous DJs out of Chicago and New York, uh, Suzanne Summers, Arsenio, and Arsenio eventually used those shows to get his deal on on Paramount when Got he it. syndicated his show. Um, there were tons and tons and tons of people like like that, and it went on for quite a while until they finally dumped the show entirely. God, but it, it was uh, but it was a great great experience. Now, can I tell you, Barry it was the stupidest thing I ever did.
0: Why is that? Okay.
1: In show business, you've got to know what to ask for. And I asked for the wrong thing. The vice president of Fox, a fledgling network, comes to me and says, we want you to produce the whole show. Sounds great. My ego's puffed up. But really, Barry, I know a lot about comedy. What do I know about soap stars? What do I know about bands? What do I know about all the other people you have to put on the show? Not zilch, but not enough. What I should have said was... Thank you for the offer. But how about this? I'll continue to do my job picking the comics and grooming the comics for the show. And you'll give me another job, because that job only takes half my time, over in the Fox lot, developing comedy shows for you. That's what I should have said. Because if I had taken that job, I'm not saying it would have lasted forever, but it would have inserted me into the system of people getting hired to do that kind of job. And I would have found another job after that and another job after that. And I would have been able to stay in Los Angeles. As it happens, when they killed the show and put in Wilton North Report, I spent six months going to meetings and never got anything, and I eventually had to go back to Canada. But everything would have been different if I'd known what to ask for. It's what I always tell people when I do these you know, entrepreneurship lectures. Know what to ask
0: for. Great. Let's do a little word association. Just a few words that comes into mind when I say these names. Russell Peters. Redefined race. Norm MacDonald.
1: Old man in a young man's body. Mike Myers. A clown, a puckish clown. Lorne Michaels.
0: Smartest guy in the room. Bruce Hills, the guy, one of the guys behind the Montreal just for last... A Festival. sweetheart who's always been great to me. Martin Short. Mm. Happiest
1: person I know in, co- in comedy.
0: Your greatest holy shit moment in comedy. The the thing that happened that no one would ever believe that happened to you. A story that, that uh, Gee, I don't was know. crazy in the comedy clubs or the circuit or with a comedian or anything that went down. Okay.
1: Sam Kinison. One of my best friends. When I first saw Sam, I went to the uh, the comedy store in Los Angeles to try to find some new acts to bring up to Canada. And uh, the comedy store put on their inventory of people and they were all good. And then at the end, they came over to me and they said, listen, we're just giving out the checks now. So we put this crazy guy on. Uh, now, this would have been 83. Um, and we put this crazy guy on. So uh, don't mind him. Uh, and then we'll talk afterwards. The crazy guy, Sam Kinnison, came on, started by breaking up a chair. And then he started going into his rant about his, uh, about his marriage. And I thought, this guy's unbelievable. This guy's the real thing. Then the people from the comedy store said, so who do you want? I said, the last guy. And they thought I meant the last guy before Kinison, but no, I meant Kinison. I said, I want to hire Kinison. They said, you're crazy. Nobody hires Kinison. I said, but I will. So four months later, Kinnison's on a plane and he comes to Toronto and he is fascinating. But the act doesn't work yet because, you know, when you're doing something really new in the arts, it's ugly before it's beautiful, Yes. You know, um, in 1913, um, you know, there were riots outside the Paris Opera when Stravinsky played, uh, had the Rites of Spring performed. Um, There are no riots now. That's just part of every orchestra's list of things that they play. But it seemed really wrong at the time. And he was not doing well at all. And he kept saying every night, he I'm Mark. I'm sorry. I'm trying my best. I said, Sam, it's okay. Don't worry. Because I knew I was onto something. I was so certain I was onto something that I didn't even care that my audiences were, were hated it. Well, one night, I guess the fourth night, Sam did his show and he walked every single person from a sold out room. Every single person, Barry. Incredible. So I go backstage, Sam's waiting and I pull a hundred dollar bill out of my wallet. And Sam probably thought he's going to blow me up. He's going to give me a hundred bucks and tell me to fly home. I thought you were going to say he's going to roll it up and let's do it. No, long- that was later. <laughs> that was later in his career. Um, and I said, Sam, this hundred bucks is for you. That's your bonus tonight. That's your bonus for walking every single person in the room. And I will give you a $100 bonus for every time you walk everybody in the room, but you have to walk everybody in the room. If there's 3 people sitting there, you don't get your bonus. But your bonus is from walking absolutely everybody. Here's your 100 bucks. And he was stupefied. <laughs> and he didn't manage to do that the next couple of nights, but again, it was not really it was reverse great. psychology. It, it, that night must have been just a special night. But what it did do is it told Sam Kinison that I was cool. And he played my clubs for years, even after he was doing big concerts. And we had a really tight friendship because of
0: it. Awesome. That's great. Tell me some um, American comedians that you think are on to something really special. And when you watch them, you think... These guys are heading towards Mount Rushmore status. Uh, that's so
1: hard to do. And you know why that's hard to do now is because the mediascape has broken down into so many discrete units that the notion of broadcasting has even become um, questionable. So what you're really asking me is, who do I think can, um, you know can get a, uh, an internet, a, a great, can
0: do great webisodes. And Maybe what I'm asking you is out of all the comedians you see in the United States from afar, who are the ones that you feel are doing the right thing? Sarah that- Silverman to start with. Sarah Silverman has a unique
1: personality and a unique perspective, and um, is fearless about her material. And I always like fearlessness about somebody's material. I like a guy named Lee Camp. Do you know Lee Camp? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Lee Camp also is 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 really fearless and has something to say. And I love the fact that he has something to say. So does Ari Shafir. He has something to say. But I don't know if any of these people are going to break through and become the next Seinfeld. Because I'm not sure it's even possible for there to be another Seinfeld with the business being the way it is and the way that everything has broken down.
0: I think you above everybody else knows that anything is possible. Okay. Anything is possible. It's possible. Let's face it. But But I
1: see... I see... I see a hundred people making two million dollars a year rather than one person making a hundred million dollars a year. Isn't that better? Yeah, it's more democratized for sure. But it also means that um, somebody like Seinfeld, who can kind of create a, a, a consciousness around himself that unites a nation, unites a world, that's becoming harder and harder to do. And that's one of the functions of comedy.
0: Name three American comedians who, when they come to Canada, they blow the place apart. Sort of like Dane Cook did five years
1: ago. Well, you know, if you, if you booked Louis C.K. in anywhere, he would do it. He would certainly do it. Um, Let's see. uh, We did Tracy Morgan as part of the uh, Canadian Music Week Festival at the Sony Center. 3,000 seats blew the place apart. The people who are big stars in America will be big stars in Canada.
0: Totally equal. Yeah, there's
1: pretty much totally equal level. It's at the people who are at the next level down where it hasn't caught up yet. Got it.
0: What's your biggest disappointment professionally? Maybe that I should have stayed in Los Angeles after the Joan Rivers show. That may be a, a
1: disappointment. But... I also met my wife, came back to Canada, I met my wife, I built my company up, um, I've done all kinds of cool things, I had a baby, none of that would have existed. You know, it's that if-then um, musical that's playing on Broadway now, which is all about how one choice eliminates another choice. And you can never know, because there's a truck out there waiting for me with with its name on it that's just ready to run me over if I just wait the uh, the red light out. And if I don't wait the red light out, I'm gone. So you always have to be aware of, of that when it comes to choices. But I always do wonder what would have happened if I'd stayed in the States.
0: Your proudest moment professionally. HBO
1: did a, um, a young comedian special. It was their fifth one. And what they decided to do was they decided to um, go to five different cities, including Toronto, and use some alumni. And the alumni in Toronto was Howie Mandel and Howard Um HBO was not in uh, Canada by the, at that time. It was illegal. Um, it still is illegal. You have to have
0: HBO Canada. Um, it's blocked at the border, as so many of your stations are. Was this the HBO special where they took a comedian from each city or two from each city and did it and Stephen Wright was in Boston with somebody else? And- I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's the one.
1: Anyway, they came to town. They came to town on a Wednesday. They told me we'd, they'd be doing this on a Saturday. We'd sell out anyway. In fact, we'd make less money that night because they would have. we'd have to lose some seats for camera placements. But... I knew even though HBO wasn't in Canada, I know it was prestigious and it seemed like a lot of fun and the audience would get something special out of it. So I said yes. So we had meetings about how we would do it and everything was fine. And everybody was happy and all the executives were good until I said, and I'll MC the show and they said no you will not MC the show we don't need an MC i said no no it's my club i i MC every saturday night i'll be MCing the show and your show isn't even long enough people are paying to get in and they're only getting 70 minutes worth of show i'll do another 15 minutes and i'll introduce your your warm up guy it got so heated and so ugly over the period of the next 3 days they hired my assistant away at the time um to work for them she quit uh, working for me and she worked for them it was completely completely a disaster. And I think anyone else would have backed down, but I did not back down. I said, I, I'm going to MC this show, or you can all leave. I said, well, we can't leave because there's nowhere else to go. It's too late. And I said, then you'll accept me MC," And I, against everybody's wishes, I went on, and I MC'd and I killed. And I went up to them afterwards, and I said, see, I told you I wouldn't wreck the show. They said, well, we weren't going to take the chance. <laughs> So I was, so I made a lot of enemies that day, that weekend, but I'm so glad
0: I did what I did. Well, you fought for yourself. Yeah.
1: I often have to.
0: That's right. We all have to fight for ourselves. That's how we get where we're going to go. So last question. Yeah. What advice do you have for the young comedian who's just starting out, who's trying to make it and get to the next level and get out of whatever whole or humble beginnings they're in, and what advice do you have for the young executive who's trying to become an entrepreneur to get to the place where you are today? You know, I think
1: originality is the most important thing of all. Having your own voice and following your own voice is the most important thing of all. When I think of the comics that I hire, and let's say I'm doing a showcase in Toronto or anywhere for that matter, and I see 25 comics on, and they're all funny. Everybody's funny now. Everybody's got a great 10 minutes. But who has a 10 minutes that takes me to a place that I've never been to before? Who's got a 10 minutes where I'm thinking... I want to be friends with this person. I want to listen to them. I want to go to a dinner party with this person. That's the person I'm looking for. So, to me, it's all about originality. It's all about the voice. Do you have an original voice and do you have anything to say? And to to that note, don't hang out with other comics. Don't go to see a lot of comedy. You don't learn things about comedy by going to see comedy. Go to theater. Go to an art gallery listen to a lot of music that's where your creative juice should come from you'll learn how to be a comic you'll learn the technical stuff if you just keep practicing but the stuff that's inside your heart has to come from somewhere completely different and it doesn't come from sitting in a comedy club watching a bunch of comics and imitating them
0: awesome (laughs) mark breslin you are a force (laughs) I love hanging out with you because pound for pound at five two, you have a lot of comedy knowledge, a lot of entrepreneurial knowledge, and also you know it's always interesting when you're sitting across from somebody who's smarter than you. And I think it was Lauren Michaels who said this once in an interview. He said if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong fucking room.
1: Yeah, that's so
0: true. So, Mark Breslin, unfortunately today, <laughs> you were in the wrong fucking room. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks, much Barry. for doing this, man. Thank you. All right, as always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison and dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune and hey.